So what I want to do is talk about a problem concerning virtue acquisition, which problem I think is both independently engaging, quite independent of Aristotle, and is uh, uh, quite general, quite a general problem. But it sort of fits quite nicely into Aristotle's account of virtue acquisition, where the basic idea, is, as, as you all know, is that you develop the virtues by habituation. You develop the virtues by repeatedly acting in certain ways. You come to be courageous by performing courageous actions. And that's the point of contact that this problem has with Aristotle. It's because his account of the virtues is thus and so that I think it's going to be an interesting discussion. So uh, the first section is uh, what I've called the paper. And this is just where I rather try and explain why, I've, why and how I've sought to avoid any contentious questions or difficult issues about the interpretation of Aristotle. So my hope is that I can f not float above, but skip above lots of difficult questions which I'm not learned enough to answer. So that's the point of the first section. So look, if I'm going to talk about Aristotle's account of virtue acquisition, and my discussion's going to have quite a lot to do with the notion of uh, decision or choice, prohiresis, then you might think that there's certain things that I've got to get right. I mean, you might think there's certain big problems I'm lo lo looming up towards. So if I'm going to talk about Aristotle's account of virtue acquisition, it'd be a good idea to get the account right. That'd be good, but that's a contentious thing. If I'm going to talk about Aristotle's notion of decision, maybe it'd be a good idea to get that right as well, but, you know, interpretative quagmire. And my thought is, whether or not this is Aristotle's thought, that intuitively virtue acquisition doesn't stop when, doesn't always start when you're a little child and stop when you're a grown man. So the kind of cases I'm going to be typically interested in are cases of virtue acquisition which take place later on in life. So my favourite two examples are someone who becomes a parent and then sets themselves the project of being a good parent by throwing themselves into the parenting project in an Aristotelian sort of fashion. And I can see that those aren't sort of typical Aristotelian examples, reflective virtue acquisition at a later stage of life. I can you know, see that mostly Aristotle's going to be talking about youngsters, etc., etc. I don't think that's going to matter particularly. So they, those are just the issues that I'm hoping not to stumble down the interpretative potholes of. How am I going to avoid stumbling down those interpretative potholes? Well, the thought is that the only claims I need to make about these difficult notions in Aristotle are so... They're so uncontentious, no doubt because they're so vaguely stated, that I'm going to be able to get through the argument I want to discuss without tripping myself up or without getting tripped up on issues which are beyond my ken. So this is what I've put at the start of the hand up. These are the uncontentious points that I'm hoping to appeal to. I hope they are uncontentious. So the first uncontentious point is that virtuous people make decisions or choices, decisions. So that vir a virtuous person sometimes or other makes a decision to act in a certain way. And that when people aren't virtuous, when people don't have the virtues, then they can't make that kind of decision. So if I'm a, uh, a youngster, uh, start, sorry. If I've acquired the virtue of courage, then I will 
every so often, quite often, make decisions which express that virtue. If I don't have the virtue of courage, if I'm a five-year-old or a ten-year-old, then I won't do that. So the account of virtue acquisition has somehow got to get me from a state where I can't make decisions into a state in which I can and regularly, regularly do make decisions. So that's my first thought. Second, decision has something or other to do with deliberation. I'll say no more than that. So it's got something to do with deliberation. And thirdly, this is the only reason I want to say that, there are constraints on what you can deliberate about. You can only deliberate, thinks Aristotle, about things which you take to be in your own power. And so in particular, if you take yourself... If, if you take yourself uh, sorry. You can't deliberate about something which you know you can't do. You can't deliberate about something which you know in advance you'll fail to do. Because the rough thought is you can only deliberate about something which is in your own power, and if you know in advance that you're going to fail to do something, then you kind of know that you can't do it. And so deliberation is constrained by views you've got about what you can and can't achieve. That's, that's the only point I sort of want about deliberation. And it's that point about deliberation which drives the argument in the paper. It's what puts a limit on what you can deliberate about. Okay, now a sort of slightly more, not contentious, but at least a move uh, uh, which, I, you know, it, it isn't entirely obvious. The next thought is, well, look, since decision involves deliberation, and since there are constraints on deliberation, then there are the same constraints on decisions that there are on deliberations. Meaning what, you might say. It was clear enough what you meant by there being constraints on decision, but, but beg your pardon, on deliberation, what do you mean by there being constraints on decision? Well, what I mean is that if I know, in acting in a certain way, that I will, for example, not be being courageous, then it's not possible in acting in that way I'm expressing a decision that's characteristic of courage. Yeah. If I know in a certain way, if I know that acting, in, if, if I know that what I'm deliberating about wouldn't be acting courageously, then I can't be deliberating about it. If decisions require deliberation, and I know that in acting in a certain way I will not be being courageous, then I know that I can't make, uh, in, I can't in acting in that way be expressing a decision to be courageous. And I, I, that, I'm hoping, is, is reasonably, reasonably uncontentious. Okay. Next thought, quick, quick leap, leap, quick, quick move back to sort of uh, worries about Aristotelian scholarship. I'm going to use examples in the paper, and my favourite examples are going to be craft examples. Builders, typically, because builders are such, you know, fascinating types, aren't they? <laughs> Who wouldn't want to? No, they are. They, they show you a different side of life. But I can see that there's an issue. Uh, I, I can see that there are significant differences between uh, craft abilities on the one hand, like building, and virtues on the other. And I can see that Aristotle is aware of those differences and that he may make a lot of those differences, or he may not make a lot of those differences. That's an issue for debate. That's an issue for interpretation. And I think it's going to be okay for me to constantly hark on about the example of a builder, just so long as, I mean, this is what I'm hoping is going to avoid me having to make contentious moves, just so long as, so now think about the crafts and virtues, just so long as, first off, that the deliberation involved, in whatever way it's involved, in craft uh, activities, 
is subject to the same constraints as the deliberation that's involved in whatever way deliberation's involved in acting virtuously. The ways in which deliberation's involved could be entirely different. I don't have a view. But the constraints to which each uh, type of deliberation is, 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 is limited are the same. And the only constraint I require, as I say, is, is that I can't deliberate about what I know I won't succeed in doing. So that's what I require of the virtues, really. Whatever role deliberation plays in the decision that the virtues express, it's important that I can't express a decision to do something if I know that I'm not going to succeed in doing it. However different the crafts are from the virtues in however many other ways. That's my thought. Final little point to try and bring this into connection with Aristotle. I can see, as I say, that uh, Aristotle's typical examples of acquiring virtues are taking young, unformed people and developing virtues in them as they mature. So, they can't, so a lot of the, the process of virtue acquisition in Aristotle will be sort of unreflective. If it really was true that Aristotle's account of virtue acquisition could not be extended to uh, accommodate the obvious cases in which people acquire virtues later in life, then it's just not a very interesting, at least to me anymore, because there are lots and lots of cases where people acquire virtues in later life. As I say, the, my favourite example is the new parent. People start off with not being parents. Some of them end up being good parents. So some of them have acquired the parental virtues. So if Aristotle's account of virtue acquisition hasn't got anything to tell me about that, then, you know, great. I mean, that's unfortunate, but it, but, but it, 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 it should have for it, for it to be philosophically interesting, given that that goes on all the time. And even so, with the virtues Aristotle does talk about, I have never in my life been, I don't think, in a dangerous situation. I am on the lowest rung of the ladder of Aristotelian courage. But I can see that things might go on in the world which reflectively make it necessary for me to start thinking about uh, developing a slightly more courageous attitude. You only need to imagine things going a bit wrong in the Middle East and drafts and blah, blah, blah. And... I imagine it still sounds plausible that the way I would go about doing that is a roughly Aristotelian way. I would start behaving in certain ways and trying to inculcate this virtue in myself. So that's why I'm thinking that the Aristotelian account ought to apply to the kind of cases I'm going to talk about. As I say, my favourite examples are builders and new parents. Okay, final point about builders and new parents. Another consequence of going with the example, uh, going with these examples where you've got people acquiring virtues reflectively, another big advantage, I think, of going with that sort of example is that it diverts attention. You, you might think, and you might think this is pretty obvious, that there are basically two components to acquiring virtue. There's acquiring certain desires. There's acquiring, uh, th there's coming to be the kind of person who wants to do certain things. And there's acquiring certain discriminative abilities. There's coming to be the kind of person who can see what requires doing in one situation or another. Now, the advantage of thinking about cases like you know, self-motivated builders, people who want to be builders, and new parents, is that it's a nice way of diverting attention from the desiderative aspect of the virtue 
to the discriminative aspect of the virtue. It's not that implausible to suppose that most parents do want to be good parents. What they need to acquire is not the desire to be a good parent, but the virtue of good parenting. And that's just a creature of the example. It would be utterly implausible to suppose that a five-year-old had any natural desire to be temperate. And so in that kind of case, virtue acquisition will have to do a, a whole load of different work, inculcate pleasures in them, get them to want certain things, shape their tastes. Those kind of things, I think, are going less on, less, beg your pardon, those kind of things are far less to the fore if you're thinking about cases like the chap who thinks to himself, I want to be a builder. And now I'm going to go out and learn how to be a builder. How do I do that? I sign on to a building course and get building. I find myself being a parent. I want to be a good parent. I don't need that inculcating in me. What I need is the other aspect of virtue. So that, I think, is a nice, nice, that's a pleasing to me consequence of those kind of examples. Yeah. Okay, so much by way of, of uh, preliminary. Now the problem I, w I want to discuss. The problem, basically, is that there's supposed to be a tension, there is a tension, between two claims uh, which are on your handout. These are A and B at the bottom of the page. So here's what the problem's meant to be. If you're going to conceive of practice in the way that you've got to, in order for it to inculcate virtue, then you're committed to the two following claims. On the one hand, if someone knows that in doing F they will not be Xing, then their doing F cannot express a decision to F. X, beg your pardon. So if someone knows that in running away, they, they, if someone knows that in running away, uh, they will not be acting courageously, then their action in running away cannot express a decision to be courageous. That's the first thought. And the second thought is, ah, but, in acquiring the X-related virtues, in acquiring the parental virtues, someone must often act in ways which express a decision to parent in a certain way, while knowing that they're not going to succeed in parenting well. So one of the claims says that you can't express a decision to X if you know that you're not going to succeed in Xing well. And the other one says that quite often, in certain stages of reflective virtue acquisition, you've got to express a decision to X while knowing in advance that you're not going to succeed. And those are meant to be intentions. They're not intentions. I've got a little suggestion to make about why they're not intentional, but those are supposed to be intention with each other. Okay, <clears throat> so now what I've got to do to get you interested in this is, is, is give you a, a thought that each of those claims is plausible. If, if, both of them were in, if one or both of them were implausible, then there'd be no interesting tension between them, because whichever one's implausible, you'll just suppose it's false. So you want to think of each of those claims as plausible, so that's now what I'm going to set off on. First question is, uh, so look at the problem. The first question is, what's meant by the weasel phrase, if we conceive of practice in order, as we have to, in order for it to inculcate virtue? I mean, that just reeks, doesn't it, of my way out when you give me clever examples. I'll just say, not the right way of conceiving of practice. So I need to say a little bit about that. I need to say a little bit about that. And the thought here is, it's a bit inchoate, this. The thought here is, the practice that inculcates virtue. So think about the new parent or the builder. 
The practice that inculcates good parenting in them, or the practice that inculcates the ability to build well, can't always be externally driven. It can't always be. No doubt it will start out like this, that the parent looks in a book or consults the internet or asks their friend or whatever. They can't, it can't remain that way all the way through. If they really are going to acquire the parental virtues, then at a certain point they've got to act for themselves, act authentically, do it from their heart, as it were. What I'm, gonna, what I'm thinking is, at a certain stage, they've got to make decisions for themselves. That's the thought. If all the way through the process of virtue acquisition, they're being externally guided, they're not, as it were, taking the decision for themselves, they're not expressing the decision for themselves, then they're always going to be in hock to external uh, uh, influence. They're not going to develop the virtue for themselves. They're not going to have it within. So that's my thought about, uh, well, that's what I mean by uh, conceive of practice as you have to, to inculcate virtue. It's got to be something which at some stage you start acting authentically, doing things for yourselves, not just doing them because you've heard that's the thing to do or you're told that's the thing to do or whatever, because you've worked out that's the thing to do. At a certain point you've got to start doing that or you're not going to acquire the virtue. That's the thought. Okay, so now let me just, I mean, I'm sure this is utterly familiar to everyone, but now let me just quickly say uh, what I mean by an action expressing a decision. Yeah? So my thought here is that a decision is a certain kind of desire which is generated by deliberation on something outside the action. Either an end it's going to achieve or a role it's going to play in your life or something, something outside of, outside the end of the action, outside the action itself. So, uh, you pick some, some, some project, parenting or building. That project will have a sort of internal goal. Parenting well, building well, uh, living well, whatever. Sometimes that internal goal Parenting well will churn out a product, so building well involves producing houses. You can produce houses without building well, but if you build well, you produce good houses. Sometimes that product, sometimes uh, Xing well won't produce a product. I doubt parenting well produces anything, produces children, I suppose, but living well doesn't produce anything. So associated with a the project, there's just some neutral goal you could call Xing well, fine well. And insofar as you're engaged, insofar as you're engaged in that project, I think the thought is that you don't deliberate about whether or not to engage in the project well. Insofar as you are parenting, your project is to parent well. You might wonder whether to bother parenting, you might decide to give up being a builder, you might work, consider allowing your building skill to lapse, but insofar as you're pursuing the building project, you're pursuing the goal of building well. So, if you imagine a series of deliberations which go something like, well, look, I've got to build yay house, and the walls are pretty big, so it's got to have a pretty, uh, uh, pretty large roof, so it's got to have strong foundations, so it's got to have cement of a certain consistency, so blah, 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 blah. If a train of reasoning like that gets you to... Uh, some bit of action, you add cement and sand and whatever to the water, then that's the kind of case I'm thinking of as a case of that action expressing a decision. I don't say, I don't say, for sure I don't say, that every time someone deliberates towards an end they're expressing a decision. Uh, that's not so. The uh, Akratic people deliberate towards how to get their evil ways, and they're not expressing decisions. 
The thought is that if you are expressing a decision, if your action is expressing a decision, then it's been deliberated about. It's, it's been come upon as a process of thought. That's all I'm saying. I'm not saying that everything which you come upon as a result of deliberation in pursuit of your ends is a case of expressing a decision. I'm just supposing that expressing a decision involves that. Okay. So that much by way of sort of baby introduction. You know, the use of baby introduction suggests, doesn't it, that I've got hugely mature thoughts to come. <laughs> we now shift from baby to prenatal. Uh, okay, so now what I want to do is make A and B look plausible. That's, that's, that's what I want to do now. So let's think about A first. So A is the claim that uh, if someone knows that in doing F they will not be Xing well, then their doing F can't be, uh, it cannot express a decision to do, to, 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 uh, to, to X. So I've got a couple of arguments for this. And then following the second argument, I've got a problem which I want to mention to you, which I don't quite know what to say about, and then I'll stop on A. So here's the first uh, argument for A. And all I'm doing essentially here is working through an example. That's, that's all, all, all I'm doing to make uh, A look plausible. Suppose, just take a case, imagine a general who's engaged in commanding his soldiers and is pursuing the internal aim of that project to, to command well, to win the battle, to, 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 fight, to fight strategically. And suppose a certain action strikes him as, as a, 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 an appropriate action to do in pursuit of that girl. Suppose he thinks if I order my troops on the left to advance, then that will be uh, sort of a, a good way ahead. That, of course, can't be the only action which is open to him. If it's open to him to order his troops on the left to advance, then of course it's open to him not to order his troops on the left to advance or to order his troops on the left to retreat or whatever. So there's going to have to be, if we're imagining this case, a whole string of actions which are open to this general. If it's going to be the case that he picks one of them in pursuit of his goal of, 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 of commanding well. Suppose now that the action he does pick doesn't in fact contribute to the end of commanding well. And in fact, suppose the action he picks, suppose he knows that the action he picks will not be a case of commanding well. Then in that case, it now seems impossible that he could have come upon that action in the way required to come upon it in order for it to express a decision. For it to express a decision, it's got to strike him as the only or best way to command his army well. So if he knows that it's not the only or best way to command his army well, because he knows that it's not going to succeed in commanding his army well, then it can't also be the case that he's expressing a decision by making that action. Yeah? And that's equivalent to saying, isn't it? In fact, it's just the, con it's the contrapositive of saying. All that can be summed up by saying that if someone's action expresses a decision to fight well, then it can't also be the case that they know that in performing that action they won't be firing well. And the contrapositive of that is just A. If they know that in doing F they will not be firing well, then their action can't be expressing a decision to fire. That's, that's the, my first little argument. Yeah. Sounds kind of, kind of plausible. Next thought. Uh, so next argument, and the next argument is essentially the same, except we just turn A into a rather more pretentious A1, which is on the next page, a rather more expanded and clumsy 
A1, which is on the next page. So, talk of an action expressing a decision to phi, to X, is kind of shorthand for talk about the desire which motivates that action. Yeah. Uh, an action which expresses a decision to, 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 to X is motivated by a desire uh, to X, which results from working out through deliberation that X will be the only or best way to achieve the internal goal of whatever you're about. So, uh, suppose you expand A. Suppose you take A and just expand it in terms of that little, that little connection between making a decision and what motivates, uh, what kind of desire that motivates your action. You'll get something like A1. If an agent knows that in doing F they will not be Xing well, then their doing F can't be motivated by a desire to X, which is the result of working out that doing X is the best or only way achieve the goal of Xing well. And that just seems, doesn't it, pretty immediately plausible. If your action's motivated by your thinking it's the best way to X, then it can't also be that you think that doing that is, uh, it can't also be that you know doing, doing that will fail in Xing, will, will, will be a failed attempt. So that's my thought about, about A. Uh, it, it, because, yeah, sorry. B basically because decisions involve deliberation, deliberation involves aiming for something if and then if you know that your action isn't going to hit a certain end, then you can't, in acting in that way, be expressing a decision to reach that end. First thought. Okay. So now sort of think a bit about, about what, that in, what that involves. Suppose you imagine a, uh, let, let, let's imagine a novice, a building novice, who, who's engaged in uh, trying to acquire building skill by, uh, you, you know, joining in with, with the master builder. And imagine that they, that they go through some deliberation. They've been, they've been given a shot at mixing the mortar or mixing the cement. And they, they mix sand and water and, and concrete in certain proportions and they stir in a certain way and the like. And suppose you consider what that novice's perspective on what they're doing must be. Right, so the novice does mix his sand and cement in a certain way, or the new parent gives milk to the crying baby in order to get it to sleep. Suppose you imagine now what the novice's perspective on what they've just done is. The novice, what the novice is doing is trying to acquire a certain skill or virtue. So imagine a new parent a weekend. They're trying to develop the parental virtues. They're not going to have developed them in a week. They're aware of themselves as being a novice. So they're aware that there's a perspective on the action they've just performed, mixing the cement or whatever, choosing what to give to the baby. They're imagining that there's a perspective on that action, which is the perspective they're trying to achieve. It's the perspective of the virtuous expert. It's ex they're thinking to themselves, if I had the virtue, I'd... Uh -huh. And the way to get the virtue is to do what the virtuous person would do, and eventually I'll have the virtue. So the novice will think to themselves, okay, I've mixed sand, cement, and concrete in certain proportions, but I want to do that in the way... Well, what I want to do is what the expert would do. I want to, to act in a virtuous way so I can become virtuous. So what I want to do is do what the expert parent would do in this situation. What the expert parent would do in this situation is draw on their powers of discrimination, which they have in virtue of possessing the virtue of good parenting, to work out that in this situation, the way to mix the mortar is thus and so. 
Or in this situation, the thing to do is not give the baby milk because it's not really tired. Something like that. And the, and the novice knows full well that they're not going to do that because the novice knows full well that they don't have the virtue which would be required to inform that kind of decision. That's exactly the virtue they're trying to get. Yeah, they know they don't have that virtue. If they did, they wouldn't be engaged in the project to try to develop good parenting skills. So the novice will know in advance that they can't be doing what the expert would do because they know that they don't have the expertise which would inform that decision in the way that an expert would perform it. So they're, try they're trying to parent well. Parenting well is exactly what virtuous people do. But then these people aren't virtuous. They're aware they're not virtuous. They're aware because they're self-reflective. They're aware that, that they're, they're, they're forming their parental virtues. So they know that they're not going to succeed in uh, parenting in the way that the expert parent would. They know that they're not going to succeed in doing what the uh, virtuous person would do. And so, since their action is supposed to be expressing a decision, we'll come back to that in a minute, since their action is meant to be, if they're going to acquire a virtue, it's meant to be an authentic expression of a decision, and they know that they're not an expert, and they know that to make a decision they've got to have the discriminative abilities of the expert, then they know in advance that they're not going to manage to do what the expert does. Okay. Grinding halt. Pause. Now we come on to what on the handouts described as problem. So now there's a little problem, a current problem. Now there's a, a pretty big problem, I suppose, with that little argument I just went through. That was meant to be an argument uh, to persuade you of A. Now there's a problem, and it might seem pretty obvious what the problem is. I've been sort of throwing around the phrase sort of pretty loosely, uh, that uh, somebody who's developing the parental virtues needs to act as the expert would act. That's what I'm imagining the process of developing the parental virtues is. It's doing what a good parent would do and eventually you become a good parent. But, of course, act as the good parent would act is ambiguous. It might mean, and this is one and two on your handout, Saying that the novice needs to act as the good parent would act might mean the novice needs to perform actions which are such that, in fact, those are the actions that the expert would choose. That's a relatively weak claim. That just means the novice needs to aim to do what, in fact, the expert would do. But that claim clearly isn't strong enough to sustain the argument that I've just run through. Because there's nothing, there's no plausibility in supposing that when a, a novice comes to mix sand and cement that they know they'll get it wrong. There's no reason to think that. It may well be, it no doubt will be, that in certain cases what the novice alights on is exactly what the expert would have alighted on. So if Aristotle's committed only to one, then my little arguments for A and A star are going to collapse. What my little arguments for A and A star require is, brackets, that Aristotle is committed to, close brackets, not little one, but little two. Sorry, sorry, not one, but two. 
that a novice developing the parental virtues needs to make decisions in the way that the expert would make them. That's what I need to be either plausible or what Aristotle says, depending on how loose we're being. So one wouldn't be enough to sustain my argument for A. Two would be enough to sustain my argument for A. But two's clearly different from one clearly stronger than one, and it might seem pretty obvious that Aristotle's committed not to two, but only to one. In which case, the argument for A, the argument for A's plausibility just fades away and we're left, there's nothing terribly interesting going on if that's the case. Okay, well, let's step forward boldly. I'm just going to now argue that Aristotle is, should be, committed to two. Uh, is, should be, you know, is. But my argument that he is is going to be that he should be. Uh, and he's a very bright guy, and if he should think something, he will think it. So that's, <laughs> that's, that's roughly my view here. Okay, so now I'm trying to persuade you that, that part of Aristotle's account of virtue acquisition is, is two. It's two rather than one. It's not just that in acquiring a virtue, you've got to do things which in fact are the things the expert would do. But you've got to, at a certain point, do them in the way the expert would do them. And that's what I mean by you've got to do them authentically. At a certain point, you've got to do them as if you're an expert, rather than just in a way which happens to churn out what the expert does. Yeah. It's easy to do what experts do. You just watch them and copy exactly what they do. And then you just copy, you know, that, you need to go beyond that. You need to, okay. It's now with hesitancy that I actually refer to a text of Aristotle. Uh, so I'm now looking for an argument that two is, is plausible, uh, over and above one. And the little text is, so I was going to make a weak joke about only just discovering he'd written two books called Ethics. Uh, but, uh, so here's a little passage from Nicomachean Ethics 6.2, no doubt very familiar. The point from this passage is that in order to make a decision you need a character. This is the passage where Aristotle says that. This is why decision cannot exist either without thought, noose and intellect, the annoyer, or without a moral state. For good action and its opposite cannot exist without a combination of intellect and character. That's uh, 1139, A33 to 35. Now that's a, you know, big news. That's a contested and opaque passage. The only point I want to take from that passage, which, which I hope is relatively uncontested, but relatively plausible, is that someone who lacks a moral character Someone whose moral character is, is as yet unformed isn't going to be, isn't going to be able to make decisions of the appropriate sort. I'm just taking from this thought, decision cannot exist without a moral state. You make, to make decisions, you've got to have a settled state of character. So if you're in process, if you're a moral novice, you won't in that state be making decisions. Whatever you do, it'll not be making decisions. Because you don't, by definition, as yet have a settled character, because you are, by definition, in process of acquiring a settled character. Okay, so let's go with that thought, that if you're in the process of acquiring a virtue, then you're not making decisions in doing that. Okay. The thought now is, 
Well, suppose you compare one and suppose you now think, suppose you now accept that point and you compare one and two as little thumbnail summaries of Aristotle's account of virtue acquisition. So what one says is that, well, sorry, here, here, here's my thought basically. One leaves the phenomenon of virtue acquisition essentially totally mysterious in a way that two doesn't. Yeah. Because what one says is that in order to acquire a virtue, what you've got to do is repeatedly act in ways which are in fact the ways in which a virtuous person would act. But your acting in those ways won't express a decision because you're in process of acquiring the virtue. So the story one tells you about virtue acquisition, which I think this is sort of one star, is that, I mean, here's the thumbnail story about virtue acquisition. Repeatedly act in ways that do not express a decision to fi, and as a result, you'll be able to express a decision to fi. It's essentially what one says, isn't it? And that just, you, you might think, why? I mean, it doesn't fit very well with a sort of thumbnail thought. You acquire virtues by, by, by acting in the appropriate, you acquire virtues by acting in, in like way. So my thought is that one says you acquire, you, you acquire an ability to express decision, courageous decisions by acting in ways which don't express courageous decisions. What two says, is that it's not enough simply to do what the expert does. You've got to do it in the way the expert would do it, with the appropriate sensitivity and deliberation. And that's equivalent to saying, I think, that repeatedly acting in ways that do express a decision to fi will eventually make you the type of person who can act in ways that express a decision to fi. You just repeatedly act in certain ways which express a decision to buy, and as a result, you're the kind of person who can do that, and the kind of person who can do that is the kind of person who, is, uh, who has the virtue. And that seems to me less mysterious, because it seems just to cleave closer to the formula, repeatedly buy and you'll acquire the five virtue. Okay, pause. You might think to yourself, but hang on, two is so blatantly contradictory. How can you repeatedly act in ways which express a decision with the aim of being able to express decisions? Because, come on, making you just basically talk to through it. You can't do it. Uh, and so you might think to yourself, two, two star are patently paradoxical, and hence we better retreat to one and one star, in which case my argument for A collapses, in which case everything collapses. I don't think that's so, and the reason I don't think it's so, I'll say in a minute, but the reason I don't think it's so is associated with what I think the best way of resolving this problem is. So the claim now that, this, that two and two star are paradoxical is a bit premature. Let's just wait a bit and see. The, the claim that they're paradoxical is essentially the claim that A and B are contradictory to one another. And I think I'm going to say something which uh, will enable us to move past that, and then I'll return to one and two in a minute. Okay. Let's now to think about B. What B says, so, so that's my argument for A. That, that's my attempt to make A look plausible to you. Now B. In acquiring the X-related virtues through practice, I'm running out of time, uh, someone must often act in ways which express a decision to fi while knowing that they will not succeed in fine well. Why suppose that's plausible? Well, 
The first clause of it says exactly what we've just been talking about. That if you're going to acquire the virtues, you've got to act in ways which express decisions. Because if you don't, your, your actions won't be sufficiently authentic or internally motivated for them to give, for them to inculcate virtue in you. That's the thought behind the first part of two. What about the thought behind the second part of two? That when you're acquiring the virtues, you know, will, you, you know, you will not succeed in exiting well. So suppose you're parenting. You've got to express decisions. You've got to act in ways which are authentic and express decisions. But here's the thought. You know in advance, if you think about it, that since you're not an expert, you don't have the expert, you don't have the discriminative abilities to enable you to do this. So you're aiming to X well. Xing well is going to be Xing that's informed by the kind of decision which is characteristic of the virtue. You know you don't have the virtue, so what you know in advance that what you do isn't going to be Xing well. It might coincide with what Xing well is, but it isn't going to be doing what the virtuous person would do, because you know that you aren't a virtuous person. You know that you don't have the virtue, you know that you're a moral novice, and so you know that you won't succeed in doing you, you know you won't succeed in acting as the virtuous person would act, but that's what you need to do in order to be a virtuous person. That's the thought. Right. Quick thing on the solu solution. That problem, which I, th I think is interesting, but, you know, I like builders. <laughs> it's a minority taste. Uh, I think that's interesting. What should you say about it? Well, essentially, it's a sceptical problem. Essentially, it's a sceptical problem. It's a sceptical problem generated by B posing a certain question to the moral novice, uh, or, or the, 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 the new parent. The pressure gets going because B says to the new parent, if you ask yourself now, as you're acquiring the parental virtues, whether you're parenting well, what answer should you give? And the answer is, I'm not parenting well because I know I'm not an expert. And parenting well is what I want to do. I don't want, I don't want to be like this. I want to be a good parent. And whatever I'm doing now, maybe I'm getting the milk right, but I want to be parenting well. And there's more to get parenting well than just make, getting a couple of options right. So I know, since I know I'm not an expert, that whatever I'm doing isn't that. So the thought is, well, suppose you, Suppose you conclude that what this shows you is that what you must not do when you're acquiring the virtues is reflect on whether or not you're going to be successful in doing what you need to do to acquire them. And since if you reflect on the fact that you're a novice, as you're acquiring the virtues, you will inevitably realise that whatever you're doing falls short of what the expert does, then if you want to acquire the virtues, you had conceptually better not, I mean, you must not, you must not reflect upon the fact that you are a novice in this, in, 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 in this area. And the thought is that this is kind of parallel to, it's a kind of version of practical skepticism parallel to theoretical skepticism. You know, nature gives you certain ways of finding out what colours things are. You take an apple, stick it in front of your head, you see red, it's a red apple. There are certain questions which if you ask them to yourself when you're doing that, then that way of acquiring theoretical knowledge will be blocked. So if you say, ah, but what if I'm a brain in a vat? What if I've had some drugs injected into me? What? Then the whole process will grind to a halt. 
So what you better do is not ask yourself those theoretical sceptical questions if you want to acquire theoretical knowledge. And that's the kind of Bernard Williams point, isn't it? That reflection can destroy knowledge. There's certain questions which if you ask themselves, if you ask them to yourselves, the project of acquiring theoretical knowledge will collapse collapse. It'll be in trouble. And the thought is that this is essentially, this idea, the self-blind novice, is essentially the same idea applied to the case of practical scepticism. There are ways of learning how to make decisions. And the thing to do is, well, now go back to, now go back to two and that. The thing to do is do things which are making decisions so long as you don't ask yourself whether they're making decisions. Yeah. It's like the theoretical case. The way to acquire theoretical knowledge is to do things which are giving you information about the world, reliable information, so long as you don't pose certain sceptical questions to yourself while you're doing it. If you do that, then you're going to find that this is no longer these perceptions are no longer giving you theoretical information about the world. Likewise in the practical case. So there's a kind of conceptual pressure on on moral acquirers to be self-blind. There was going to be another section on this. I mean, I'll just summarise it in a couple of minutes. You might think it'd be good to have some connection here with Aristotle, a bit more than, than you've given us. So I've got rather a fantastic little story now, which which, which sort of you may well think to yourself, I don't remember Aristotle ever saying anything like this. He, he, you, you may kind of develop a problem, however interesting it might be, and your solution is, you better not think about that. You mustn't think about that. You might think Aristotle no more mentions this than he mentions theoretical scepticism. He's not interested. So I was going to develop a little thought about magnanimous agents, basically. There is an agent. Whatever you think about, about whether Aristotle allows people to change morally or improve or whatever, whatever you think about that, there is an agent in the Aristotelian moral universe who is immune to this sceptical question. And that's the magnanimous person of Nicomachean Ethics 4.3. The magnanimous person of Nicomachean Ethics 4.3 is this odd sort of dual character who's got all the virtues, he's as good as can be, and knows it. And knows it. Interestingly, the two vices correlated with magnanimity in N3 both mention a failure of self-knowledge. The the vain person, if that's his name, doesn't know himself. The, The two people who have the vices don't know themselves. The magnanimous agent is could be absolutely confident in the face of the sceptical question. Because for the magnanimous agent, there is no moral development. Because the magnanimous agent's an acme of moral perfection. There's no getting better than him. There may be lots of different ways of being a magnanimous agent, but they're as good as it gets. And so you might think to yourself, well, that's interesting, because then what I'd expect is there's something which is open to the magnanimous agent to do, They've got kind of self-knowledge. And the ordinary agent is going to be the person of the following chapter, the, ne- the, uh, the, the person of NE44, the nameless person who, who kind of gets it right about honour but doesn't know that they've got the greatest perfections. They're going to be the person who, who doesn't ask themselves these questions. And the thought finally also was that there's a difference here between the magnanimous person 
And what Aristotle says about the truthful person in Nicomachean Ethics 4.7, the truthful person in Nicomachean Ethics 4.7 is just a guy who gets it right about himself. He does, it's no part of his virtue that he gets. Sorry, 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 I'm stupid. The truthful person in Nicomachean Ethics 4.7 is a person who gets him right about himself. He doesn't overestimate, he doesn't, doesn't underestimate. But that's what his virtue consists in getting it right about himself. There's no reason to suppose he's got any other virtues. He might be someone who recognises that he's a pretty morally tedious fellow. The difference between that that person and the... So for the truthful person, there could be all sorts of moral development. They might realise that they could live better lives than they can. And so moral development's a possibility for them, so their truthfulness had better not be this kind of radical awareness of what they can and can't do. The magnanimous person is safe from this, because there is no development for the magnanimous person. He can ask himself whatever he likes. He's not captured, as it were, by the tension between A and B, because the tension between A and B is a practical, sceptical problem about virtue acquisition, and there's no improvement for the magnanimous agent. That's pretty much where that was going. I'll stop there, Ursula, because it's, it's getting pretty bad.